Actually, not quite. Um, But we're going to continue unpacking what the Apostle Paul has to say to this church that he writes to in Corinth. It was a church that he planted. It was a church that he spent uh, at least a year and a half with there in person, teaching them, explaining to them things. But it was a church that had been heavily influenced by the culture around them. That if you ask the question, do they look more like Christians or do they look more like Corinthians, they probably looked more like Corinthians. And he'll get after that and we'll step into some of that next week as he begins to further unpack some of the ways they look more like Corinthians than they do Christians. But one of the first things that he writes to them is to lay down a foundation And a foundation of what the gospel is and how the gospel has taken root in their hearts and in their lives. Because the the big idea that he's begun to unpack that will continue throughout the rest of the book is that, look, even though you may look like Corinthians, you are Christians. And what what we need is for you to repent, follow the Lord in obedience, and quit Allowing worldly standards and worldly wisdom and worldly ways of living and acting to be what guide and determine what you do. And so he begins to write about that. And and over the last several weeks we've tried to get our minds wrapped around how in the context of telling them and commanding them and appealing to them to not be divided but rather united, Paul has returned Verse after verse after verse to this theme, this big idea of what the gospel has done in their midst. And even why the gospel is considered as foolishness for those outside of the church. And we're going to step into more of that here this morning and try to get our minds wrapped around what it is that he has to say. I'll be real honest with you this morning, our text is a pretty heavy theological text. And there's not a command in the text that we can find specifically given to us. And so that we can, we can imply some things that we can, you and I can take out of here and you and I can try to put into practice. And we can certainly do that and it's not wrong to do so. Um, but the idea in this text this morning is that our minds get engaged. That the way we think changes. Now, I'm, I'm completely convinced that behavior follows thoughts. And if my, beha- if my mind is thinking in the right ways, then my actions follow. And I think that's what Paul's doing in the text here this morning. He's after their minds. And so in, in that sense, it's, it's a heavy theological text for us. Now we're hopefully going to understand it and not get find ourselves just buried in, in theological concepts. Hopefully it's... Such that we know how this relates to our lives. But the big ideas that we're going to see on display in our text here in chapter 2. Is that the Holy Spirit reveals. And the Holy Spirit instructs and teaches. Now to try to show you this. God did something again this morning. Which he has done more times than quite frankly I can count. 
And what it is that he did was that I get into our Sunday school class, our Christian education class, and Kevin invariably is teaching something that directly relates to what I'm going to stand up here and teach to you now. It happens more than not. And we don't necessarily specifically coordinate those things at all. And yet, he shows a video this morning, and I lean over and I, I tell Mike Gardner, I go, we're going to show that video in church. He's like, is it in the computer? I said, nope, I'm going to go get it. We're going to put it in, and we're going to show it. Because to try to unpack and understand our text this morning, again, it's heavy theologically, but I think this video gives us a way to see the theology in practice and to unpack and understand what it is that Paul's been saying. All right, so like I said, that, that, that's an application of our text this morning. Our, our text this morning is not about hospitality. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit in and using the gospel and us as those given the gospel to share the gospel. And there's an application of how that worked itself out in the life of that woman through first some neighbors of her who invited her over, and now, through her own ministry, it's a beautiful example of what we've tried to unpack and, and define as Christ-centered witness, that, that our church is going to have programs. Our church is going to do things where we say, hey, we want to have an event where we ask people to come here, we want to give them tracts, we want to tell them about Jesus, but you know what? It, don't just think of evangelism, don't just think of witnessing as an event you either come to or invite someone to. Think of it as a lifestyle you live where you are in a mission field. I love the line that she said where, where God doesn't get the address wrong. It was powerful. If you just let that sink in for a moment, that, that my move from 250 Philadelphia Avenue to 353 South Church Street was something that Carrie and I made a decision to do, but it was ordained by God. And he didn't get the address wrong. And so the people we live around aren't just projects, they're our neighbors. And we've been called to that house on that street to be ambassadors for Christ. And we do so aiming to be faithful to the gospel message we've been given. And then we just sit back and remind ourselves that it's God who saves. Did you catch that line as well from the video? That's our text this morning. The Holy Spirit does this. One way to, a, a question to ask that our text will directly answer is how does somebody go from the gospel's foolish to it's the power of God? That was 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But for those of us being saved, it is the power of God. What happens that makes that person go to be this person? And Paul answers that question in our text this morning and says, it's the Holy Spirit. That's the decisive reason why. That's how the dead become made alive. That's how the blind 
receive sight. It's God the Holy Spirit revealing. So Paul has this vision of a church that he's trying to paint for the Corinthians. And he does so first through an appeal to them. And, that as, and then as he unpacks how the gospel has taken root in their midst. And as he walks through some of his own ministry. And the ministry of Apollos and the ministry of Peter. And, and gives them the reasons for why he does what he does. He has this vision that he's presenting for what this local church should be. We might be able to ask the question, what does the local body look like if they're centered on the cross? If Christ is their focus, what does this local body look like? If the gospel is what unites them, if it's the word of the cross and the the cross of Christ, he uses all of these same type of phrases to describe the exact same thing. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. It's the word of the cross, it's the cross of Christ, it's the gospel. So what is this community look like? And here's what he says. First of all, they're united. And he gives a specific command to be united. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Be united because of the gospel. That what unites you is far greater than what might distinguish you. We saw that lived out and demonstrated, illustrated in the video as well. She's talking about gathering for meals with people who have wildly different worldviews. And doing so over some good food and conversation and just asking God to work in their midst. They're united. Secondly, they're humble. And he unpacks this in 18 to 31. And he tells us at in verse 31, God has chosen... To do things in the way he has done them, so that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in themselves. God did not choose you because you were wise according to worldly standards. God did not choose you because you were powerful or had political influence according to worldly standards. God didn't choose you because you came from the right family. He chose you so that there would be no boasting in you. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works. This is not of yourself so that no one can boast. Like we don't get to look on the backside of salvation and go, that's great. How awesome am I? God, I'm really glad you picked me for your team. Paul's saying, look, no. God actually works in a way contrary to what our world would celebrate and put forward. It's upside down. Because the world's going to see the work of God and they're going to see the work of God lived out in the lives of you and I and they're going to challenge it, they're going to question it, they're going to call it foolishness. He says, look, God's done what he's done so that you might be humble But next, and Billy walked us through this last week, he's done what he's done, and Paul does what he does in in working with this group and, and leading them and teaching them so that their confidence might not rest in a person, but in God himself. And Paul says that in verse 
5 of chapter 2. Look, I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, look, when the gospel is shared, it is contrary to the wisdom of the world. It is contrary to what the academic elites are going to teach. It is contrary to the worldview of the political leaders. It is contrary to the ideas of world leaders around. And you know what? That's by design. So that your confidence in your salvation is not in the fact that somebody won an argument with you. But rather God showed up and went to work on you. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Then we get to verse 6 where Paul begins to now walk through answering the question, what makes the dead become alive? Why do the blind all of a sudden get and receive sight? How does somebody go from the gospel is foolish to the gospel makes perfect sense? And even the lady on the video is a beautiful illustration of these chapters. If you caught what her job was, she was a professor had just completed writing her tenured book. In the academic world, there's a phrase that says publish or perish. That's what, that's what she's discussing there in, just a, in a passing comment. That to become tenured, you've you got to contribute something to the academic world and you've got to be evaluated and peer-reviewed and all of those things. And then you can achieve a certain level of status and then you're kind of protected in, in, in some ways. And so she had done that. And she aimed all of the worldly wisdom she had next at trying to take down or dismantle or dissect not just the gospel, not just the Bible, but those who believed it and lived it, maybe did so poorly, maybe did so well. And in the course of that, found that there was a wisdom outside of what she had known. That's our text. That's chapter 2. That's the end of chapter 1. That God does this thing in us. That's against and outside and upside down. As it compares to the world's way of thinking and living and understanding and unpacking things. So let's go to verse 6. Let's try to get our minds wrapped around this. The first thing that we're going to see here in the text is that the Holy Spirit reveals and Paul's going to use the word wisdom. It, it, it has in it then the idea of foolishness as well. And he's been using these words foolish or folly and wisdom in, in really two different ways. And he's been using it to describe the, the quote-unquote wisdom of men, the wisdom of the world. That's what the world thinks is a good idea. It, that, that has in it, bent into it, defining the idea at its heart that there is no God. There's certainly no God that I am accountable to. It's the prevailing wisdom of our culture in our day. And here in verse 6, Paul's going to use the word wisdom from the other side. 
He's going to talk now about the wisdom of God. And he's going to make this contrast. And we see the contrast show up in the first word of verse 6. Yet among the mature, or the idea could be however. So here Paul's contrasting the fact that when he spoke, he did not do so with plausible words of wisdom. And the idea there is according to how the world defines wisdom. However, he says in verse 6, we among the mature did impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of the age. So he's contrasting two types of wisdom here, a wisdom the world is going to agree is wisdom and a wisdom that is actually God's wisdom. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul says among the mature. Now here he's not dividing the Corinthians into subgroups of mature Christians and immature Christians. His use of the word mature there takes us and should take us back to the very beginning of his letter in verse 2 when he addresses this church that he's writing to as sanctified saints. He's using the, mature, the word mature in the exact same way where he's describing to them or describing them as saved. That's the idea there. The word mature actually in the Greek text can be translated perfect as well. But we we just need to be careful that we don't think perfect in terms of sinless or mature in sense of godliness at this point. The idea there is saved. It's the same exact idea he communicated in chapter 1 verse 2 when he calls them sanctified saints both in the past tense. He's describing to them what they are. Are. They are saved. And he says, among them, among the saved, we do impart the wisdom of God. So let's try to define what this wisdom of God is that the Holy Spirit reveals. I read yesterday in Proverbs 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think at the heart, this wisdom starts with The communication that there is a God, that this God exists. In some ways, we could broadly define the word wisdom as an acknowledgement of God and our accountability to him. But then as we get a little bit more narrow, because Paul's been using the word wisdom since verse 18 in chapter 1. And he's used it for several verses now throughout the majority of chapter 2. A little bit more narrowly defined here in this particular context. The idea of wisdom is not just that there is a God that you and I are accountable to. But that God loved you and sent his son to die for you. And there's faith and salvation through faith in his name. So it has a narrow aspect and definition to it in the context of 1 Corinthians that we could just say the gospel. And he's been using that phrase, as I said a few minutes ago, over and over again. For the word of the cross is folly. That's the gospel. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he said, look, I, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 4 of chapter 2, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. That idea of wisdom, a little bit more narrowly defined in the context of 1 Corinthians, is the gospel message. Now what I want you to do, I want you to grab your Bibles and go to Acts 17 with me here briefly. Because in Acts 17, we actually see Paul in a Greek culture which the Corinthian church was. Corinth was in Greece. But in Acts 17, before he gets to Corinth, he spent a little time in a Greek city called Athens. And there we have, with much more detail, recorded for us what it is that he spoke to the Athenian philosophers and men who, and women who wanted to just sit around and know nothing more than to learn new things and hear new things told to them. Verse 17 of Acts 17, or verse 21 of Acts 17 tells us that. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is part of the wisdom of men that Paul is trying to distinguish from the wisdom of God. The wisdom of men was not this idea or communication of knowledge that had never been heard before. In fact, Paul says through 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, look, I'm just like this broken record, and I just keep telling you about Jesus. The word of the cross, the cross of Christ, the gospel, Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom, I came with Jesus. Well, we get to see a little bit more of the details about what he might have shared to the Corinthians by just seeing what he shared to another Greek culture, very similar to the one in Corinth. So go to verse 24. Let's hop into what Paul has to say to these philosophers. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. And he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Go down to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So let's, let's just try to summarize Paul's sermon here that he preaches to the Athenians because I think it gives us a window in to this wisdom he says he communicated to the Corinthians. He starts off with, there's a God who does not live in temples made by human hands. That's huge. These cultures would have had many temples erected around their cities where you would go and worship a god or goddess. He doesn't live there is where he begins. 
He's the creator and sustainer of life. He commands people everywhere to repent. Point number four, you are accountable to him. You're not the exception. He commands all people everywhere to repent, and that includes you because you're accountable to him. And he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. So the clock is ticking. But he guarantees these truthful things by the resurrection of Jesus, which I would say directly implies a communication of both the person of Jesus and what he came to do and the fact that he lived and died and then was rose again. I think this gives us a window into this wisdom that Paul says he imparts among the mature. It's not a wisdom of this age. It's not a wisdom you're going to find spoken of and celebrated in the midst of culture. It's not even of the rulers of this age, Paul continues in verse 6, who are doomed to pass away. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This was God's plan from the beginning, the cross of Christ, the word of the cross, Christ and him crucified, the gospel had been decreed by God before the ages. It's secret and hidden in the sense that the world is not going to be able to find it through the ways that they go and approach and search for wisdom and knowledge. You don't arrive at an understanding of the gospel by putting God in the science lab and running him through the scientific method. You don't arrive at an understanding of God and the gospel by seeing him with your eyes and hearing him with your ears or having a heart that just is naturally inclined to understand and unpack what God has for you. Now the world and its ways of thinking, and I would say the natural bent of all of us, born as dead in our transgressions, is not able to understand these things. And it's the Holy Spirit who reveals them to us. And God had decreed this before the ages began. This means the cross wasn't plan B. God didn't somehow see Adam and Eve's actions and go, holy smokes, holy spirit, Jesus, we got to come up with some way to remedy all of this. The cross wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the beginning. It was before the ages began. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals these things to us. The leaders of this world are not going to be able to unpack it. Verse 8, we're going to see that they didn't understand it. None of the rulers of this age understood this. What is the this? It's the secret hidden gospel. Not secret and hidden in the sense that God doesn't want people to find it, but secret and hidden in the sense that you and I aren't going to be naturally able to find it. The rulers of this age didn't understand this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One scholar said this. I really thought it captured well that idea, this idea in verse 8. that In Roman Corinth, which Corinth was a Roman colony, they were Roman citizens. 
this observation would have been a direct attack on Roman imperial aspirations. The cross for Rome was a concrete symbol of power. The cross said, challenge us and we'll put you to death in the most horrific way possible. But their arrogant killing of Christ sowed the seeds of their undoing. They didn't understand that it was by and through the death of Christ that all things would be changed. The rulers of this age didn't understand this. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, but it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So we see it's the Spirit who reveals these things. Now, verse 9 often gets applied to heaven. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. It gets applied to heaven. We can't imagine the glories of heaven that are to come. And that's not a bad application. It can certainly be applied for that. The word prepared there in verse 9 is the exact same word that Jesus uses in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, so that idea is there. It's not a bad way to apply these truths. But Paul's saying something a little bit more broader at this point. The eye is not going to see, the ear is not going to hear, the heart is not going to imagine the things of God because the senses are not able to understand. Because it's the Holy Spirit who reveals. These things, in verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. God, the Holy Spirit, reveals. Let's try to understand what what Paul's been saying here. He began in verse 18 of chapter 1 saying, look, the gospel is going to simultaneously be two things. It is going to be foolish for those who are perishing. It is going to be power for those who are being saved. And then he begins to unpack and unfold that he determined to know nothing among them except for the cross and Christ crucified. Paul says, look, I didn't come to you and find ways to speak to you that you would readily acknowledge fit a definition of wisdom. I came to you telling you that there is a God and that you're accountable to him. And that one day he's going to judge you for your actions and his judgment's going to be in righteousness. It's going to be perfect. And he sent his son take care of this issue of sin that you have. Paul says, look, I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom or eloquent words of wisdom and plausible explanations. I didn't come on your wavelength of thinking to try to convince you. I just came and I wanted to tell you about Jesus. He said, in the midst of that, And as that was happening, the Holy Spirit's working. The Holy Spirit's revealing. 
The Holy Spirit's doing what, what man naturally can't do. The Holy Spirit's giving hearing to the ears. He's giving sight to the eyes. He's, he's, he's removing the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh that the heart might believe. The Holy Spirit makes the dead alive. The Holy Spirit gives the blind sight. These things have been revealed to us through the Spirit. They weren't revealed through higher education. They weren't revealed through political aspirations. They weren't revealed through just having good genes and having the right family lineage in line. Whatever your 23andMe is going to sell you, that's not the reason why you understand things of God. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals these things and the Holy Spirit teaches and instructs. So in verse 11, Paul gives an illustration for how the Spirit does this revealing and how he does this teaching and how he does this instruction. And he says this, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also... No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So here's what he's saying. Here's the illustration that he's trying to just get them to understand and, and, and unpack what he's, what he's making, the point he's making. That you have thoughts, and until you communicate those thoughts, nobody knows the thoughts that you're thinking. And he says it's the exact same thing for God. God has thoughts. It's the Spirit who knows those thoughts, and it's the Spirit who reveals those thoughts so that you and I might understand these things. And in verse 12, we see that further unpacked. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that, or for the purpose of, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. In verse 12, Paul says, look, you've received the Holy Spirit. It's, it's because of that he can call them mature. It's because of that he can say they're sanctified, past tense, that they're holy saints, past tense. It's because they've received the Holy Spirit that he can say these things to them. God has revealed to them who he is and they have placed their faith and trust in Christ and they have become temples of the Holy Spirit and now the Holy Spirit because they have received him is giving them understanding so notice with me that received is in the past tense Paul doesn't say you're receiving the Holy Spirit he doesn't say that you will one day receive the Holy Spirit he says, no, you received the Holy Spirit. So there isn't more Holy Spirit that you and I need to go get. We've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Past tense, we have received the Holy Spirit. That will become a big deal later on in this book. And he said, you've received the Holy Spirit so that you might understand the things freely given to you by God. And I would submit to you those things are the very things he highlights in his thanksgiving section of chapter 1. Where he says, you are completely enriched 
in Christ. You have been given every spiritual gift in Christ and you will be sustained by Christ. And as you have received the Holy Spirit, he unpacks and helps you understand all of these things that God has freely given to you. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals and it is the Holy Spirit that teaches and interprets. And in verse 13 he says this, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That last phrase is probably better translated, interpreting truths of the Spirit to the people of the Spirit. Paul says this, Corinthian church, Waynesboro church, if you've placed your faith and trust in God and in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have received the Holy Spirit. And his job now in your life is to take God's word and help you unpack it and understand it. That you might be able to figure out and know how the idea of being completely enriched in Christ applies. That you might be able to be free and serve with your gifts because you've already been given every spiritual gift. That you don't find yourself jealous about what gifts somebody else has or, or downplaying the gifts you have. That there's freedom for you to serve because you've been given a gift to do so and the Holy Spirit helps you understand that and make sense of that. That you might also understand the completeness and the all-encompassing salvation that we have been given as well. That we would be sustained and one day declared completely guiltless when Jesus comes to judge the world in righteousness. Because that Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit reveals these things and then the Holy Spirit teaches and instructs. So early this morning we sang, Oh God, the Holy Spirit, revealing deity. That's how the blind have sight. That's how the dead are made alive. And what you and I are called to do to an unbelieving world is to know nothing other than Christ and Him crucified. Now we need to find ways for them to understand those truths. Okay, when I teach the third and fourth graders on Wednesday nights, I use different words than I do here with you. Because they have a different level of vocabulary. So it's, it's, this is not the idea that we use every big word possible with everyone that we ever meet. No, there's some context that you've got to figure out and navigate. The idea here is that we don't, we don't try to skirt around the message of the gospel so that we find the world going, hey, we, we like that church thing, but we don't really like that Jesus thing because we don't want to be accountable to him. Now we lovingly know nothing more than Christ and Him crucified. And we watch the Spirit work. And we pray to that end even. And again, there's not a command in our text this morning, but I would certainly say that these two truths, the Holy Spirit reveals and the Holy Spirit teaches and instructs, are two very specific prayers that we can pray. That the Holy Spirit might reveal the truthfulness of the gospel to those that we know have not yet 
understood it. And that the Holy Spirit would help us understand more and more of it. Because that's what he does. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have revealed to us these things. And God, we don't, we don't come to you this morning because of our awesomeness. We don't come to you this morning because we were born into the right family or we have some type of political clout within society or, or we, we have wisdom that's accepted by the academic world. Now, God, we, we, we come to you because you have revealed yourself to us. And you actually say that we're weak and we're foolish and we, we don't have noble birth because you save not according to the world's standards. So God, thank you. Thank you for revealing to us who you are. And God, we pray for those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That you would reveal yourself to them. And God, would you use us to, to, to be that mouthpiece. To be that, that person that, that makes and shares a meal. To be that neighbor. That would see your spirit go to work. God, would you even bring to mind right now to us people that you want us to pray for and speak to. And God, we thank you for who you are, the Lord of all. There is a God who does not live in temples made by human hands, but he is the maker of heaven and earth. And so God, we praise you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.